Welcome to the Reported Missing Podcast, where we investigate why Canadians go missing, how it affects society, and what is being done to prevent and respond to the issue. Hi, listener. I'm your host, Becca, and in today's episode, you are going to hear from Heidi Illingworth, Canada's federal ombudsman for victims of crime. She is going to tell you how missing persons affects our society and why she believes it's an issue that should be treated as a national concern, something that I strongly agree with. So back in November of last year, 2019, Heidi made a list of recommendations for all police services across Canada regarding missing persons investigations. She did this through a submission to the Independent Civilian Review into Missing Persons Investigations. These recommendations are based on scientific evidence, so they are solid recommendations. I'm not going to mention them all in this episode, but I will be referencing them throughout future episodes when I start getting into topics of police investigative practices. I will give you a quick summary of them now, though, right before jumping into my interview with Heidi. Essentially, Heidi wants all police services across Canada to do the following things. Number one, conduct thorough risk and vulnerability assessments in their investigations. Number two, provide trauma-informed responses and support to families of missing persons. And number three, to adopt a community-based approach to policing. Heidi is a voice for victims and survivors of crime at the federal level in Canada. Her job is to ensure our federal government meets its commitments to victims of crime. Both her and Maureen Trask from last week's episode are excellent examples of what being a true missing persons advocate is all about. And this is exactly the type of work that I'm here to support and I want you guys to support too. I encourage you to listen to this episode all the way through because I guarantee you are going to learn something valuable. And I will be teasing next week's episode, which, trust me, you do not want to miss. I consider myself an activist and somebody who has fought for justice for victims of crime my entire career. So I've been involved in a lot of advocacy work, mostly for people who've been impacted by interpersonal violence. And yeah, basically 20 years uh, career so far in terms of trying to improve the justice system for victims and survivors. So when did you get into this role that you're in right now? I was appointed as federal ombudsman for victims of crime on October 1st, 2018. So I've been just over about a year and a half in the role. So what are your main responsibilities? So as an ombuds, what my main roles are, my, my main responsibilities um, are to issue reports, to make recommendations, and then also to shine a public light or, or bring public transparency to issues within government institutions. Let's talk about the submission that you made to the Independent Civilian Review into Missing Persons Investigations. Was that something that you were asked to do or something that you took initiative on? Uh, that was something that I took on personally, uh, that I, I wanted to make a submission because of my past work um, at the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime. I had worked quite a bit on issues of missing persons in that role. And so it's something that 
has stuck with me. It's a social issue. I think actually it's a public health issue um, that I care a lot about. And I think we need more of a a pan-Canadian approach to this problem and to the response that families get and the support for families as well. So why do you say that it's a public health issue? Well, it's a public health issue because there are a number of groups of people who are more vulnerable to go missing in our society. And we know that from research from other places around the world. We know that, uh, you know, women, children, persons suffering from mental health disorders, people with dementia are more likely to go missing and to suffer harm. Um, people who have suicidal ideation, right? So it is, it's a health and safety issue for me. And we need to do more to try to keep people safe and, and prevent harm uh, in these situations. Hey, I'm jumping in here and interrupting our interview to talk to you, the listener, about something you probably don't realize. As Heidi just mentioned, the issue of missing persons affects mostly vulnerable people, which is something I have said in my previous episodes. But one thing I don't think people often realize is that nobody is immune to mental illness, mental or physical disabilities, to homelessness, to violence to becoming a vulnerable person, essentially. So that's why people like Heidi and Maureen from last week's episode and myself are placing an emphasis on effective prevention. It will be a reoccurring theme throughout this podcast. I noticed that they label 75% of missing children as runaways. And that is a very problematic label to me because... We know that children who are finding themselves on the streets and who have um, escaped their homes are usually there because of abuse and violence in the home. And, you know, these these cases should be treated very seriously. Um, These children are vulnerable. They can't, uh, you know, they're too young to consent to, you know, anything that might happen to them on the street. We... uh, you know, the way that we address it by labeling them runaways, um, I think that's highly problematic. And it, it just speaks to sort of the change that we need to see. You know, we don't want to, it's, it's part of that victim blaming culture that we have. Children are at risk of being exploited. And so we need to see them as vulnerable and really invest in how do we get them back to safety and ensure that nothing happens to them. And the same with adults who go missing, right? If we know that they're particularly vulnerable because of mental health issues or other, you know, life circumstances, then we need to, uh, you know, respond with compassion and concern and quickly for their health and safety. Right. And we're seeing 70 to 80,000 Canadians a year who are reported missing That is a lot of people. Some argue it's not, considering Canada's population, but it really is. And that's just people who are reported missing, not just people who could actually be missing. And not to mention, like, their families, their friends, their communities, they're traumatized, they don't have answers. And that's something that we should really think about, too. There are people who are going to keep going missing if we don't figure out 
an effective prevention strategy and all of our taxpaying dollars are going towards police resources used to deal with missing person reports that could easily be prevented. Like a runaway, which is a problematic term on its own, but if we focused on domestic violence, substance abuse, bullying, all of the variables affecting why a child escapes from home, maybe we could prevent 74% of kids who run away if we just tackle those variables first. No, I agree with you. Um, Prevention is where it's at. We uh, need to invest way more significantly in Canada on prevention of violence and of family violence. We know that uh, kids are are fleeing home because of um, problematic substance abuse by parents, because of violence, because of abuse exploitation. So if we can stop this, we're going to have less of a burden on law enforcement to try to track down these people after the fact and, and hopefully less harm coming to people all around if we, if we invest in, you know, teaching positive parenting and how to resolve conflicts, healthy relationships, all of these really important prevention programs don't cost a lot of money, but they have enormous benefits. Um, at the back end of the system, right, and preventing violence and crime. And um, to your point about the distress that family members of missing suffer, I just want to echo that. I've worked with uh, a number of affected families, and having that person, uh, your loved one, uh, you know, you don't know their whereabouts, you fear for their safety. It's it's a being... They are held, the family members are held in this state of psychological distress and anxiety and there's such a heavy burden on their shoulders. They can't find peace. They're just constantly struggling to, for information and answers and, and they can't move forward. They're in this frozen state. So, you know, there's really significant implications for families who are left behind when someone goes missing and they don't have the answers. So there's all sorts of reasons why we need to do we need to invest in prevention so that we can um, more fully uh, stop this phenomenon that's that's too common, right? Like 70,000 people a year approximately in Canada are are going missing. Like that's, that's a huge number, 70,000 people. And in my mind, we don't even fully understand the scope of the problem because of the very little research that exists on missing persons in Canada. We don't know who is most likely to go missing, why people are going missing, how many people are currently missing. There's so much ambiguity around this topic that we don't even comprehend it. Yeah, I agree with you fully. We're, we are lacking research in Canada. Um, I you know, it hasn't been a priority for, uh, you know, I'd love to see a, a more university researchers focus on this, like the center that was created in Portsmouth in the United Kingdom. Uh, it would be great to see something like that happen in Canada, where you could have a center of expertise that did this sort of research. Because as you say, we don't know, you know, we we have sort of an idea that there's about from the RCMP that there's about 500 people a year who 
remain long-term missing, I guess, but I, we, you know, we don't know that that number is accurate. We need to look more at the, I think, the intersecting factors and reasons why people go missing because, you know, they... I think there hasn't been enough look at as well as how that is connected to victimization and and crime. Um, we have to do more research for sure on on these issues and and to try to determine um, how we can prevent it. Right, and I'm really shocked that Canada doesn't have a national missing persons framework. So I want to know your thoughts on that. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that. Um, we don't yet have a national framework because it's really viewed uh, still as, especially around adults, uh, missing adults, that people make a choice. You know, they're, they're adults. They can choose to leave their life behind. People are not necessarily viewed as, as vulnerable and that something serious might happen to them. So... I think that, you know, if we don't continue or if we don't look at creating a national framework, these cases are still going to be looked at as very individual instead of this is actually a a bigger societal issue, right? Like we have localized approach, right? We have the local police service or the service of jurisdiction that responds to it. They will hopefully assess the risk of that person, who has gone missing and uh, likelihood of harm, uh, but that doesn't always happen. Um, you know, sometimes biases come in to play, uh, and so things aren't responded to as seriously as they should be. And and that's a concern for me is that if we had a national framework, we would see a more standardized approach. We could have these checklists where a very specific protocol is followed. I want to ask you about your background in victims of crime and advocating for victims of crime. First, can you define what a victim of crime is? A victim of crime in Canada is anyone who suffered physical or emotional harm, property or economic loss as a result of a criminal offense. Crime and violence is such that it can affect anybody at any point in time. So, um, you know, we don't we don't like to label certain um, segments as more vulnerable. So, but we do we do recognize that anyone, uh, any socioeconomic background, anybody can be victimized um, in Canada. What are some common misconceptions or stereotypes of victims of crime? Well, I think um, what commonly happens. Uh, with victims is that they get blamed for what has happened to them. So um, especially with sexual assault, people don't understand what consent really means. People don't believe that men can be victims of sexual assault. For example, people think that sexual assault only happens in heterosexual circumstances. There's a lot of times where people don't understand that you're actually much more likely to be victimized by someone known to you. We have this idea that only strangers commit crimes against people, but but that's not true. You're much more likely to be victimized by someone you know when it comes to sexual assault. So uh, there's a lot of, of misperceptions, I think, about victims, um, you know, that they are are perhaps 
week that they're that they've put themselves into a situation where they've been harmed where you know we don't we don't actually look at uh, the the perpetrator and and say that hey actually this this person is that's their their goal is to prey on someone who is vulnerable so yeah we have sort of we sort of have an upside down way of looking at at, at victims can you tell me about some helpful resources that help victims of crime? Yeah, certainly. Um, in every community across Canada, there are victim services programs. So many are community-based and you can access them. There's programs. Sometimes they're connected with the police service. Sometimes they're not. They're just a community-based program. Uh, but they can support people through the criminal justice system. They can provide information. They can get them connected to counseling. They can get them perhaps connected to make an application for financial assistance because of any expenses that resulted from being a crime victim. Um, we have a lot of uh, shelters for women and children who may have been victims of family violence, um, uh, intimate partner violence. We have sexual assault support centers in Canada as well that people can go to if they've been victimized by sexual violence. So we have a lot of really amazing organizations that are, are trying to help people through traumatic experiences. In terms of missing persons, there is a little bit of a disconnect there. We don't always see that families of missing per people are connected to victim services even though many of the victim services can help in tragic circumstances. So I think that's a gap that we have is that families of the missing, they aren't always viewed as victims of crime, as, we, as we've said, right? Because people think that adults choose to go missing. Um, they, they choose to leave their life. They choose to start over again somewhere else, what have you. So we need to see more, I think, more referrals from police to victim services who can help support families and get them connected to, you know, perhaps counseling services, things like that. I've talked to a lot of families about the resources and support they are provided with, and a lot of them say that victim services is not really helpful. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that um, maybe a gap that needs to be addressed because, um, Maybe they don't have the training that they should have to deal with families of the missing um, because it is a, a probably a more specialized area. Um, so what what we've seen that has been working really well as a result of the National Inquiry for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women is that all the provinces and territories now have family information liaison units that are are culturally like indigenous, uh, culturally specific support services for families that have been affected by missing and murdered. So um, those are having, those programs are having a lot of success. Um, so what, what we need to do is have more specialization, I think, within victim services to try to um, support families because it's not, it's probably not something, depending on where where the office is or how big the program is, they don't necessarily have experience with it or training. Right. And there are also families who feel like they are doing a full-time job, whether it's 
physically searching for their loved one or making posters or trying to find documents to provide to police. It is a full-time job. So is there something that can help them with that? Not not really. There are societies for missing children um, who help with posters and creations. Um, I do agree with you. The families that I've worked with, it's the same it's the same thing. They're uh, completely 100% focused on finding the loved their loved ones. So they're concentrating on making posters and trying to actually uh, do searches, go to canvas people. If we had a national charity in Canada that could help with these cases, I think that's a gap that we have. That's something that would be really valuable. There is an organization in Ontario called Ontario's Missing Adults that does provide a lot of support to family um, that I know of. And then some of the provinces are more advanced and have programs as well. I know Saskatchewan has a, a pretty good program built into their victim services, I believe. So it just depends on where you are in Canada. But it would be great if there was um, a national charity for missing persons that can help family members through this uh, really traumatic ordeal. Can you tell me about some of the challenges that you face in your role? Probably the biggest challenge that we have or that I have is that my office is really a creature of a statute and we don't have powers, like inherent powers. So the recommendations that I make are not binding to any government official or office. So like I don't have power to force any government body to change or to remedy a wrong that we've discovered. What we have to do is we have to try to persuade these officials to agree with any conclusions that we found. You know, if we've done an investigation, um, perhaps we've received complaints from victims and and that's why we've looked into an issue to try to resolve it. Really the biggest challenge that we have is that we have to convince officials to do the right thing as um as we have found because we you know we feel that there has been unfairness is there a process where you can check how many recommendations have been acted upon by the government well we um sort of do that in-house ourselves we have sort of a tracking system or we're we're trying to do a better job of that but it's It's a challenge. Like we don't, I wouldn't say we're, you know, batting a hundred percent or anything like that. We're, it's, it's a, it's definitely one of the frustrations that we feel and that our stakeholders feel as well is that our, our recommendations aren't necessarily acted on all the time. So yeah, that is, you know, something that we're trying to track is, is when do we affect change and, and what does that look like? In your opinion, What percentage of recommendations that you've made to the government have actually been acted upon? Oh, I would guess that it's pretty low. I don't have a specific number, but I would say like only 20 to 25 percent. Are acted upon? Yeah, I'd say I would guess that it's fairly low. Would you say that you're supported in your role? Yeah, I I mean, I feel that I have a really amazing team. Um, my office, I've got 10 public servants who work 
alongside of me to try to help me implement my priorities. And then the Department of Justice as well. We're um, an arm of the Department of Justice. So they're they're very supportive of, of us, although we do remain at arm's length because we're an independent office. I would say um, yes, that I, I do feel supported in my role. You are an independent office, but it is funded by the government. Is that correct? Yes. In regards to that 25% number that you roughly estimated, why do you think that is? Well, I think that uh, it's it's difficult to force really big systems, um, big bureaucracies, the criminal justice system to make changes. There really needs to be political will to force change at times. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of of back and forth and trying, as I said, to use our persuasion to convince actors within, um, you know, the federal government that they can make changes that will actually improve the bureaucracy for Canadians. What do you want Canadians to know about how missing persons affects them directly? Well, I guess I want Canadians to know that This is a public health issue. I really believe that we have to do a better job of looking at those sort of interconnecting factors um, and vulnerabilities uh, that make some people more at risk of harm. We don't want people to be harmed or suffer, their safety to suffer. How can we do this? We need to first, I think, invest in some prevention more heavily um, across Canada. And just, um, you know, like public, we can do public awareness campaigns around what do you do uh, if your loved one is going missing? Like there's a lot of uh, myths that still exist. I think we need to have some of those myths uh you know, busted and uh, information shared with the public and and what to do. I think based on some of the evidence that we have from researchers around the world, like in the center from the UK and really conduct thorough risk assessments when someone's reported missing and what is that risk of harm that could come to them if we don't find them quickly. There are vulnerabilities um, that put people at risk of harm and their safety at risk. So we need a national approach to it. And that's why um, I wanted to comment on it from our perspective as an agency that talks to people in every province and territory, Canadians who are affected in every province and territory. So yeah, that was that was what we hope to do. And um, it's great that people like you who are on the front line and talking with families, you know, that you've discovered it and read it and hopefully are are sharing it. And maybe some people who listen to your podcast can have a look at it and share it because the more um, we get stakeholders and the public and people to talk about this and to share uh, these ideas, then the more likely we are to get a national framework in place one day, right? Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think that Canadians are very good at putting pressure on their government to implement changes when they know about an issue that's affecting them, their health, their safety, their security, their communities, and just society as a whole. I have a lot of faith in Canadians, so I'm really excited about bringing some attention to missing persons in general. 
That's all my questions for you, Heidi. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today and sharing everything about your background with victims of crime and missing persons. So thank you again. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, uh, for the opportunity. And I look forward to listening to your podcast and uh, staying in touch about these issues. And I thank you for the work that you're doing with families. So let's talk about next week's episode. One of the recommendations that Heidi made in her submission is for all police services across Canada to conduct thorough risk and vulnerability assessments on missing persons. Because risk assessment has a significant role in the scope and outcome of a missing persons investigation. In fact, I'm going to be looking at the risk assessment conducted for a missing person that has reached nationwide headlines. I will be speaking with the family of this missing person and information they have not released publicly yet. So make sure to stay tuned for that. Follow us on Instagram at reportedmissingpod because I will be dropping hints later in the week. And make sure to subscribe if you aren't already. That's it for today, guys. I'll see you next time.